Welcome to Hauling Humans. Now today I think I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to read you a story that I wrote uh, years ago about a morning that I had. And uh, I, I spent my career in what we call fire-based emergency medical services, which I always thought was kind of ironic because it should be called EMS-based fire services because that's mostly what we do in the fire department is run EMS calls, which is why I found that to be the most fascinating part of the job. I was never really good at firefighting. I just didn't have the body for it, but I did my best. So let me tell you this story, and I think this is a good story to talk about because it highlights the fact that there are days and there are times, there are incidents, there are some times when the most critical patient that you're going to encounter that day is the one you look at in the mirror and it's because of all the invisible mental injuries that we incur throughout our day and throughout our career that we do not talk about so let's go back in time this is a a bit of creative nonfiction, meaning I uh, use a little bit of poetry mixed in with some interesting language hopefully it's entertaining to you but it tells an absolutely true story the moon was full when the fire began. It was a cold winter's night. It was a frigid night. But it would be much colder before morning. About a foot of snow remained on the ground. The roads had been plowed and just warm enough the previous day to remove all signs of Christmas from the asphalt. I was sleeping comfortably in my bed at home. I had to work early and more snow was on the way. There was never any snow days for fire and rescue. Ever. I remember thinking, and I thought that several days, I should have been a teacher. They get off when it snows. A wood-burning stove burned into the morning, into the walls, and into the minds of those it embraced. I woke up two hours early that day to make sure I had time to clean the snow off the car, warm it up. There was no new snow, and after guzzling a cup of coffee and stepping out into the icy air, I was more than awake. I decided to go in early, hours early. Fires and chimneys aren't bad in themselves. They happen all the time. People never even know it. The layers of creosote burn away. The chimney virtually cleans itself the same way an oven on self-clean burns away the remnants of Thanksgiving dinner. You see, the problem arises in the space where the chimney passes through the attic. When the chimney heats up to over a thousand degrees, the mortar between the bricks crumble, cracking open the smallest of pathways. Fire can assume any size. It is a crafty, hungry beast. Even the smallest of crevices will set it free. And then the feeding frenzy begins in earnest. The drive into this morning was uneventful. It was cold and it was lonely. The roads were abandoned. Sirens screaming over the sound of whispering lives. Whenever I hear a siren in the distance, even today, I imagine a voice on the other end of an invisible line connecting the siren to the victim. There screams but a whisper of the cacophony of life around them, around us, around everyone in this world, all happening at the same time. Sometimes this job is an endless dream. A recurring nightmare. 
her penultimate thought, had not yet left her mind. And that begs the question, what was her last thought? It was still early, and we all had time in this story, some less than others. So you haven't met her yet. Um, I often wonder what all their mornings were like that day. But let's get back to the endless dream. You're going to meet her later on in the story, and then you're going to understand. Every child that is lifted into the back of a fire truck dreams of what it would be like to become a firefighter or a paramedic. I remember that happened to me. And if you probably had the same experience. And let me tell you, it takes years of dedication and training to finally touch upon this dream. And then once that dream begins, there's days when you wish you could just wake up, start over, <laughs> hopefully get another dream, a better one. I arrived at the small fire department where my vehicle was parked with the moon still in the sky. My boots echoed across the empty bay floor as I made my way to the solitary suburban response vehicle parked at the far end, my vehicle. I was one of three career firefighter paramedics that worked 50-hour weeks in a large rural county, just filling the gaps of the otherwise volunteer fire and rescue service. This was during the mid-90s. I checked out all the medical equipment. I arranged my fire gear. I tested my air pack. I was ready. It wasn't even time for me to get to work when all of a sudden, beep, house fire. It was dispatched. I quickly climbed in the front seat, punched the door remote, and I waited impatiently for the door to rise as I fired up the engine. Good God, do you know how long it takes a 12-foot door to rise up when you got to be outside of it like yesterday? Jeez, oh flip, I wish I had a remote before I walked in the building. But as soon as the door was high enough, and I didn't wait for it to get all the way up, I, I, I had a spot marked on the wall. As soon as the door was high enough, the suburban catapulted out of the firehouse and I careened into the dream. When I arrived on scene, all I saw was a one-story ranch house with flames billowing out the front window, two windows down to the right of the front door. There was a car in the driveway covered in snow. A car in the driveway means people inside. As I stepped out of my vehicle, the cold air bit into me, my lungs burning as I inhaled deeply. It was still dark, but the moonlight reflected off the untouched blanket of snow in the yard, mixing serenely with the flames echoing across the field of white. I listened as I took in all this beauty. There were no sirens. I was on my own for a while. I dressed and donned my air pack, faced with a daunting task and an impossible decision. Oddly, I thought of my interview for this job. I was alone there as well. Sitting on one side of a large boardroom, across from me sat five stone faces. Then one of them looked down at a piece of paper and spoke in an emotionless tone. You are alone on the scene of a house fire. You think there may be victims inside. What are your immediate actions and priorities? That's a trick question, I thought to myself that day. Any first-day recruit knows you don't go into a burning building alone. But there I was, just a few years later, in the exact situation, snapping my breathing regulator in place and grabbing a howling bar and walking through the smooth, untouched snow. How could I stand there and watch the 
building burn with people inside. Many times during this nightmare, you are faced with decisions like this, and you must pick the one that lets you go to sleep that night. Sometimes there isn't a restful choice, but you still have to choose, and you don't have much time to think about it. So I chose. All I had on my mind as I pried the front door open was, fire's on the right, go to the left. Fire on the right, life on the left. If anyone was still alive, they would be on the left. If the bedrooms were to the left and they still had their doors closed, they could have a chance. But not if I waited for a fire to take the whole side of the house. Not if I watched it burn. I forced the door open and thick black smoke billowed out above my helmet, filling most of the entrance. There was about two feet of clear space at the bottom of the door where there was no smoke. I plunged into the darkness crawled on my hands and knees along the left wall, searching for the hallway that must be there. As I did this, three strangers were about to meet on an otherwise abandoned roadway nearby. A car with a couple in the front seat, not wearing seatbelts, was about to meet a man in a pickup truck whose seatbelt was no help. Take a minute to make a minute. The fire service is full of sayings like this. And what it means is, if you take time to do it right, you will save time in the long run from correcting mistakes. When you're doing a quick search of a building on fire, there's no room for mistakes. First thing to know, there is nothing quick about crawling through a conflagration and looking for signs of life. It is dark, pitch dark, and hot. Too hot to survive. You can only see by feeling your way through gloves that are thicker than oven mitts and imagining the scene around you. Just a you make up an imaginary house based on what you feel because you've never been in there before. You know, some of the old timers would say that modern protective fire gear takes us where we don't belong. It is so protective, we can literally crawl into a fire looking for life that could not possibly exist. How could anyone survive inside an inferno like this? Life just cannot exist in a conflagration. But you know what? We check anyway, just in case. You know, Justin. He's the chief of every fire department in the world, Justin Case. I sat on my knees all of a sudden in a pool of melting snow with steam rising off my soot-covered fire gear. I was only in the house for 10 minutes, but I was exhausted. It's not the humidity, it's the heat. And if you've ever pushed yourself beyond the brink of your physical capabilities and then kept going, you know the type of exhaustion I'm talking about. The core temperature of firefighters in a burning building can exceed 104 degrees. And that sucks the life out of you. Imagine putting on a thick snow suit in a sauna and doing CrossFit. Now raise the temperature several hundred degrees and work harder. It literally drains you. The inside liner of my fire gear was soaking wet with my own sweat. And you know what? I didn't find anybody inside because there was no one inside. Apparently, they had two vehicles, and they took the other one on vacation or something. I took all that risk for nothing. Risked my life, struggling to survive it for nothing. And then suddenly, I, was, I wasn't alone. Someone patted me on the shoulder and said, Good job, Craig. We got this. There's a head-on collision down the road. No one has responded yet. Can you take it? I shook my head. I looked up. I saw the building was surrounded by firefighters with hose lines streaming in windows. The red flames dimming down were replaced with red lights still echoing off the snow. 
Sure. I replaced my air pack. I took it off. I stowed away in my vehicle. I set my helmet beside the air pack and jumped in the front of the Suburban. Still breathing heavily. I'll catch my breath on the way. Screw it. A recurring nightmare. Her penultimate thought was to slow down. The road was dry. This thought betrayed them. The car rounded the curve. Her ending began. You know, the roads looked dry that morning. They looked safe even. They looked safe even though the plowed snow banked up on each side, framing the winding path perfectly to the horizon. The accident was only about three miles away. It was reported as head-on and serious. I didn't see a single vehicle coming the opposite way, even on a busy road during a time when people should be starting their commute. I drove with caution because I know that dry roads in this condition can sometimes not be so dry. And there was no one coming. That meant the road was completely blocked. His truck raced easily through the day. This dream they shared was about to begin. His morning probably began by fastening his seatbelt firmly in place. A seatbelt is supposed to save lives. He was driving a three-quarter ton red Ford pickup truck. I often wonder where the couple was going. It was still very early in the morning, and they were a young couple, early 20s at best. At least, that's the best I could do at estimating their age. They did not begin their day by fastening their seatbelts. Coffee covered the dash, mixing their lives into one nightmare. As the vehicles embraced, the three lives didn't even have time to blink. I mean, I came, I came to a stop just before the accident. I positioned my vehicle at an angle so my emergency lights would be easily seen from a distance. And there was no one on the scene, no other vehicle, no person, no nothing. It was quiet. Who would have called this in? They must have left. I, I understand. Pretty soon, I would wish that I could leave too. I became a paramedic to save lives, not to listen to their whispers as they slipped away. I approached his truck first. It was the first vehicle I came to. He was clearly on his way to work that morning. His 7-Eleven coffee exploded onto the dash. His door was jammed shut, but crumpled up a little bit, and his window had shattered. The cold invaded his truck. I could see my breath as I reached in to check his pulse. I could not see his breath. My eyes were drawn to the steering wheel, and what was once his face? He had a beard, not gray. That's the best I could do. The steering wheel was up in an odd place in the middle of the cab, it kissed him intimately as the dashboard pushed into his hips like an overzealous lover. His knees rested in the middle of his seat. I could imagine the impact pushing, ripping muscles, tissues, arteries, and veins becoming all one mass of bleeding flesh. You know, two objects cannot occupy the same space. Even into one nightmare, as the vehicles embraced, they became permanently entwined, sitting sideways, blocking the entire two-lane road. I looked down and noticed the river of blood that began at the driver's door of the truck. It was leaking from a crack. It was about a foot wide and created a deep red sheen as it slowly flowed like molasses across the road and into the bank of snow.
white makes red pink, right? Well, unless the red is so overwhelming that it just makes more red. The snow along the bank looked like a dark cherry red snow cone. I, I looked down and realized I was standing in this river of death. The bottom of my boots were laden with a thick clotting blood as I reached into his truck one more time for the second time that day, searching for any sign of life where I knew none could exist. His face was blank and as white as the snow through the fields. There's a kind of pale that stage makeup will never be able to replace. It can only be made through the loss of blood, all the blood, which he clearly no longer possessed because it was creeping across the path. As their minds met in the middle of the road, I embraced my dream with red lights echoing one thought, act quickly and safely snatch their lives from the final stanza of this poem. All right, I began to walk over to the car. I gotta do some good here. I approached it from the passenger side. The two vehicles had met perfectly in the middle of the road and it wasn't a standard offset head-on collision. I could easily walk straight from the driver's door of the truck to the passenger door of the car. It was just a few steps away. The passenger window was also obliterated. And I didn't even feel the need to reach into this car, though. In fact, I didn't want to reach into this car. Because it was time for me to meet the other two people involved in this nightmare. And you know what? I didn't know someone could fit in that small V-shaped space of the dashboard where the windshield met the dash. I could barely reach that area to clear the dust off my vehicle's dashboard. Yet there she was. The windshield was politely bulging out to accommodate the extra space needed for her to completely get into that section of the car. And she looked right at me. Long blonde hair covering the rest of her body as her head rested unnaturally across the middle of her back. I shivered. <laughs> As I walked around the back of the car, I saw the red footprints I left in the snow, each one a little less red, fading. As I approached the driver's door of the car, I began to feel the creeping cold of the morning fire that held no warmth within this dream I thought was pure bliss. This horrific dream where the dead are literally everywhere. And this morning, I was the only living soul left to count and verify their presence in this world. He was driving a vehicle much smaller than the man's truck and not nearly as well built. I found him lying on his back, his seat leaning back all the way, all the way back, as if he decided to park and take a nap at a rest stop, except the dashboard rested comfortably on his chest the engine compartment, a blanket, keeping him warm. His steering wheel was more aggressive lover than the man's truck. I could tell his hair was black, not as long as hers, but longer than mine. I found his neck, for some reason. There was no pulse, as expected. I didn't expect to find one. My mind drifted away to what brought me to this moment. It began the day I woke up and embraced my future. The class afraid, the morning sun of that summer year, I thought. I had everything under control. I understood everything needed to save a life. I memorized every malady, every traumatic injury, as well as how to fix them, the treatment for every single thing. 
I was the gunner. You know that person in the classroom that's so freaking annoying? I was the first to raise my hand and the last to be called on because everyone knew I had the answer. I was too young to think about the learning process. That instructor probably hated me. I didn't care what he was trying to accomplish. I didn't care. Why did he waste so much time calling on people that didn't know the answers? All I wanted was to be the best, make the greatest impact, save the most lives. I knew from the first day that it would be easy learning to heal. Chief C began his lecture with rules and laws to save lives, and I soaked up every word like a dry sponge under a dripping faucet. What I wasn't taught, or perhaps what I didn't come to understand, until the moment I stood beside that car, was that often there's nothing you can do. There was nothing I could be doing that morning. Nothing that could be done by anyone. All the answers in the world were no help. As I entered the real world, where lives are at risk every minute of the dream of self-reliance, this hellish day began with a cup of coffee in the icy cold air. I was still sweating from the fire as the fog from my breast filled the air between me and this crumpled mass of steel and flesh. I took a step back, mentally, and I looked at the big picture. It was still too early. The steam rose as the moon embraced the trees from above. Who would have thought life could be so fragile? As I was crawling through that building and just a few moments ago, I was trying to stay alive. I was fighting to stay alive. At that moment, all three of these lives were snuffed out so quickly, so fast, so easily. And I looked, the moon, the moon was so beautiful at that moment. It was full and huge as it set with the naked trees silhouetted in front of it. The only sound was steam hissing from the car. Or was that the truck? Maybe it was the truck and the car. It was difficult to tell. As the moon crept behind the trees, the light of the sun began to peak above the horizon. I couldn't believe these strangers passing through this misty morning light would find no sunrise. The morning was so cruel. As I stood there staring into the car, the sun rose behind me. But that sun held no beauty, stretching their lives paper thin ripping the dream I thought was my destiny wide open. Their dream was over. I suddenly began to wonder if they were watching me as I stood there in the middle of the road. I thought at that moment this was my destiny wide open. Their dream ended as I realized what a fuck I had gotten myself into. I can't tell you how many times I had been at family gatherings and been told I was a hero. So many friends and family thanking me for putting my life on the line to save lives. Not one time did I ever tell anybody ever about days like this. You don't talk about them. But you know what? There were more days like this one than there were days where I felt like a hero. In fact, I never felt like a hero. Like so many others I have seen, their short journey of life ended as the arms of 
death embraced them so fast. This last day of life began with the thought of fire burning through the morning. Whew, let me tell you, the emotional roller coaster of this job is indescribable. There are days full of death. I can't tell you how many dead people I've seen. And this was a day when I not only flirted with death myself, but I also met Mr. Death everywhere I went. On days like that, you give everything you've got to cling to life, to pull it back into this realm of existence we call reality. It began to end while watching their lives burn into the dream of this life I embraced. At the end of your shift, you always get back in your car and you drive home to your family. And when you're asked how your day was, what could you possibly say? There's always a pause as you frame the response. Eh, it could have been better. I'm just happy to be home. That's where you put your mask on. You cover up that ugliness. Your mask of happiness. Your mask of sanity. So that you can be a functional person for the people who need you. So remember what I said at the beginning of this story? Sometimes the most critical patient you're going to encounter in a day looks at you in the mirror. It's you. Every time we do this job, we injure ourselves mentally. They're invisible injuries. And you've got to process those injuries. I'm not saying you need to talk about it. But you need to process it. Otherwise, it'll be with you decades later. And it will affect everything you do. Never forget that. And take care of yourself at the end of every day. Process these emotions so that you, you can survive a career and you can make it home to your family every single day.